1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 26th day of September 2017. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more one of the more popular shows in the voice America business channel. And I also want to invite you to keep your questions and comments, criticisms, and praises coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. Also want to thank our sponsors to make this show economically viable sponsors for today's show are new range gold Klondike gold corp Aron resources, Novo resources, Genesis metals corp, Osprey gold development and fireweed zinc. Before I talk about uh, today's show, let me remind you that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and that you can subscribe to that letter by going to MiningStocks.com, MiningStocks.com, where you can call our office during normal work hours in New York at 718-457-457. 1426-718-457-1426. 1426-718-457-1426. I remind you of the fact that I write this newsletter because it is a most exciting time to be an investor in the junior gold sector, especially if you own a couple of the uh, companies that are sponsors to this show that have done exceptionally well, companies uh, like R& Resources and Klondike Gold. In fact, I'll be speaking to Ivan Bebek of r Resources uh, after the first commercial break today. But especially noteworthy is Novo Resources. Uh, in US dollar terms, Novo's pr- share price has risen from around 80 cents in US money uh, to over $5 today. Uh, so, in just a couple of months, it has risen very dramatically. Uh, and that is because it is increasingly looking as if uh, a very major gold discovery in Australia is uh, in the making. Dr. Quentin Henning has been on this show not only during periods of time when Novo was a sponsor, but other times as well, because uh, Novo's project has been my personal favorite. I've found it extremely exciting, a story in and of itself that is uh, very fascinating whether or not you own the stock Uh, from an exploration, geological point of view, an extremely interesting story. Um, Novo, because it is my own personal largest holding is now, uh, represents more than 50% of my uh, retirement portfolio. Because it has been my personal favorite, I've been pounding the table uh, for my subscribers to buy these shares. Talked about them. Uh, I counted it up over 57 times that I've written about Novo uh, in 2016 and 2017. So almost every week I'm commenting on Novo resources and that was before this recent share price run up um, because I've just really believed in the story and it because it's just a fascinating story as well. Uh, naturally, the stock has pulled back a bit today. Yesterday, it went up more than a dollar a share uh, on, uh, in response to the presentation at the, uh, at, at the um, Denver Gold Show, actually, uh, there was a, a live uh, video of uh, filming that was going on at 2.15 in the morning in Australia. The video revealed some 300 nuggets uh, in the shallow uh, open pit um, that was discovered in a relatively small open pit which is just one speck along an eight kilometer length um, discovery channel basically these nuggets have been discovered over an eight kilometer length uh, space uh, with um, with metal detectors just an unbelievable story as my friend john kaiser has said this project is so surreal that it's hard to believe and, and in fact most mining professionals have simply viewed it, at least up until now, I think that's starting to change quite frankly, but they viewed it pretty much as a freak show. But I do not believe that it is a freak show. In fact, given the credibility of Dr. Quentin Henning, whom I have learned to know very well over the past four years, I have always taken his views about how the great Witswaters Rand deposit was formed to be fascinating and seemingly very realistic. Uh, as such, I believe that if he found another Whitewater's Rand deposit, Uh, it would be the most spectacular gold discovery in my lifetime and so that's why I have emphasized it so much that's why it has been for some time my largest holding Um, and uh, it is just a very very interesting story so even uh, in fact (laughs) recently after Dr. Whitney after this major discovery of nuggets he suggested to, to me I said to him so have you found the Whitwaters Rand deposit do you think in your own mind you finally found it and he said, no, it's better and it's bigger than the Witwaters Rand. Well, I think maybe Dr. Quinton Henning has gotten carried away. Time will tell. But even if exploration results fall short of Dr. Uh, Dr. Quentin Henning's enthusiasm at that point in time, I feel safe in calling this a spectacular discovery. Of course, based on what is proven to date with regard to a gold resource, proven economic prospects, etc., the stock is grossly overvalued. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it's at $5.32 in U.S. money earlier today, giving it a market cap around $750 million. It's, it's an extremely expensive stock based on what you can bank on at this point in time. Uh, and, and based on that, it certainly is a freak show. I suppose you could, you could still call it that. We should start to see a better sense of what the true potential is for NOVA over the next few weeks uh, from the Purdy's Bay, uh, Purdy's Reward Project, diamond drilling will be starting there to test for the structure and that will be followed up by large diameter drill holes uh, aimed at improving uh, the uh, statistical confidence in an extremely nuggety project and deposit. It's uh, it's very difficult statistically of course be, with a narrow drill, uh, drill because you're going to miss a lot of the nuggets uh, but anyway uh, it will be followed also with bulk sampling and so through a series of, of um, exploration efforts, uh, we should know more in the not-too-distant future about, um, a little more at least, about the prospects of this, what could be a very, very major discovery. By the way, if you go to miningstocks.com, on the homepage you will see a link to the presentation uh, that I'm talking about at the Denver Gold Show. Go to miningstocks.com and click click on that uh, link. You'll find it right on the homepage at miningstocks.com, and you can watch what people at the Denver Gold Show watched yesterday, Quentin Henning's presentation as well as the live feed from Australia. Well, two other sponsors to this show are my second and third personal holdings, largest holdings. They are Klondike Gold and RN Resources. I have a very high expectation for both of those companies, and I think we should start to see uh, some real results in the not-too-distant future. In fact, Klondike has made quite a move already this, this year. Aaron has been a bit softer, and I think that's really good news if you don't own the stock. It's actually uh, something I think uh, makes it tempting for me to add to my position. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking to Ivan Bebek in a little while, uh, and he'll give us an update on the progress being made uh, by and on uh, on a couple of different projects that they're working on at the moment. A listener sent to a question to me suggesting that maybe I'm too bullish on the price of gold. Uh, he quoted Martin Armstrong, uh, Sunshine Profits, uh, Jordan Roy Byrne, who I know very well, good friend of mine, speaks to the Metals Investor Forum. Uh, others as well, I know um, somebody also sent me an email along suggesting that Louise Yamada believes that we're still in a bear market that started in 2011. Well, if that's true, then... It certainly is, um, is a different view than I've had. The view that I've had has really come greatly from um, Michael Oliver. And Michael, uh, really, uh, the reason I like Michael so much is because he's just proven to be so reliable uh, to me over the past three years or so that I've been working with, uh, with Michael. Uh, he doesn't give us anything to be on the show. Let me make that clear. I have Michael in the show because I have confidence in his work. You know, I'm not a trader. I'm not interested in getting in the market in a short term uh, for short term trades. I'm really in it to buy. I want to know if we're in a bull market, then I want to buy stocks like R& Resources, Klondike, Novo, uh, and other other companies as well. Um, But if we're in a bear market, then I want to take that in consideration and, and lighten up and, and raise some cash. Or if we're about to get into a bear market, well, it's certainly Michael's perspective is from momentum. And what I've seen from Michael's work, the momentum uh, technique that he uses, really gives us an early warning whether we should be in or out of a market. Um, with regard to Michael's latest piece that was written on September 18th, um, as is usual, his work showed both a price chart for gold as well as a momentum chart. So he lays them above each other, one above the other. Uh, the momentum charts really shows why Michael is not having a nervy bust right now over recent gold price weakness. It is showing a considerable strength on the momentum side. But if you were to look at the price chart only, then you could say, yeah, everybody can see that we are in uh, you know, maybe a tenuous turn to the downside. But um, as Joe, the late Joe Granville said, if if it's obvious, if it's obvious to everyone, it's obviously wrong. Well, that I've found to be true with Michael Oliver. Oliver is remains very bullish. He's not with us today. He has some personal issues to attend to that he, he was not able to be on our show today, but I'm sure we will be able to get him back sometime in the not too distant future, hopefully next week. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the bottom line for me, my perspective, Uh, again is if we're in a bear market uh, let me know so I can lighten up on my gold shares if we're in a bull market uh, then I want to have a heavier position obviously and I would also just mention this as John Kaiser's pointed out we're in a position now where um, we're in an exploration phase where some things are going to do extremely well no matter what the gold price does or even if we're not in a rip-roaring bull market take Novo resources for example if they are in fact in the process of discovering the most significant gold deposit in many many years which some think is is the case uh, and if the economics look extremely positive it might might not be a good idea to own Novo in any event even in a bear market well I just leave that as as a thought uh, to ponder today's show I've just uh, I've, I've named today's show the forthcoming global crisis unlike anything seen before as I mentioned we're going to be talking uh, we're going to be talking to Ivan Bebek in just a couple of minutes. He's going to give us a, an update on RN Resources. The company has not one or two, but several world-class gold targets that they're looking at. They're exploring, starting to become very active. And this year, they will be active through the winter because they'll be going into, uh, into Peru and some world-class targets there as well. But we're going to look for an update from Ivan right after, in just a couple of moments after our commercial break, but uh, the, uh, we'll be talking to um, we're, we're going to be talking to Alistair MacLeod today uh, about the financial markets and, and the credit cycle and where he thinks we're at. Uh, clearly, he believes that we're entering a period of time an expansion period of time, which Alistair will explain is the most dangerous of all uh, periods in the credit cycle, and he'll explain why that is and why you need to be aware of it how might it end, what are some of the signs, and what and how should you prepare uh, for that ending. Well, we do have to go to our first commercial break, but don't go away because when we come back, I'll be speaking with Ivan Bebek of RN Resources.
0: million.
3: New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New ranges unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again, Ivan Bebek, the Executive Chairman of R& Resources. You know, the most important consideration when you invest in any company, it's management, the quality of management with regard to the quality of R& Resources management. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Ivan Bebek and his partner, Sean Wallace, have had a remarkable amount of success for a couple of still pretty young guys. The R& team brings with it not only huge amount of geological uh, competency and, and skill sets uh, from people that work with major mining companies in the past. But they also have a, a way of, they know how their way around the financial realm and being able to structure deals, structure their companies with the right kind of owners of the companies to start out uh, is very, very important. And then, of course, success breeds success. And the successes that that uh, Wallace and Ayn have had Give confidence to investors uh, in the future. And so they are able to raise capital very efficiently. They've done a very, very good job and they've had a couple of successes in the past. Uh, there was the uh, Caden Resources, which was sold in a bear market and a very, un, very, not a good market at all to Agneagle Eagle for $205 million. Uh, and that was during that horrendous bear market in 2014. And then um, they also found Stratton Resources, at Ivan, Sean Wallace and Ivan, uh, Stratton Resources, and they co-founded uh, Keegan Resources, now Sanco Gold. So those have been extremely successful companies, and now I think they're back for the biggest and best of all, in my view. At least, I think it has that potential at R&Resources. Uh, let me, before I say hello to Ivan, let me just mention that uh, R&Resources Trades in Toronto and New York on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol AUG under both exchanges. That's the symbol. 77 million shares, uh, U.S. Earlier today, U.S. Two dollars and 29 cents, giving it a market cap of 100 of 176 million dollars. And in my way of thinking, it's the stock's been a bit soft lately, and I see that as an opportunity, and um, have taken an opportunity to add to my. Uh, to my position. Uh, Thanks for joining me again, Ivan. It's really good to have you with me.
0: No, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be back.
2: Always good to have you. I know that you're tired as can you've just spent. You said before we went on the show some 60 meetings over the last week or so with different people at two different conferences there in Colorado. Um, But anyway, I'm sure you're you're a young guy yet. You still have a lot of stamina. So let's get going on Nunavut. First, let's ask, I'd like to ask you, How are things going with that project? Uh, You talked to us about it the last time they were, it's taking a long time to get assays back. You've gotten some back, but give us an update on Nunavut. How is that going?
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I think uh, we're all facing the same, if you talk to a lot of the juniors at these conferences, everyone's facing the same backlog. And where the delay is, is the delay is in the sample prep. So we actually ship Mm -hmm. our assays to Vancouver, and then they ship the samples out to Thunder Bay, to prep the samples, then they ship them back to ALS in Vancouver. And that's happening not just for us, but for a lot of juniors. Nothing that I'm proud to boast about, but it's a good sign that the market's getting busy again and there's life back in the space and we're headed towards the bull market for juniors. What we've announced so far is about 12,000 out of 30,000 metres of drilling um, two of those targets that we've reported on, one called West Plains, where we ended some holes in seven or a hole in seven and a half grams per ton over a meter and a half, and we hit some five and six gram rock, um, that's a spectacular target that has a lot of room to, to grow at depth. Um, the whole discovery holes so far around that target are within 120 meters from surface, and they're running anywhere from three or four grams up to 10, 11 grams. So something that I think was missed a bit by the market, but it's the first Target that we've gotten back, and we're not—we didn't drill these targets in sequence of the best targets. We drilled them in the most logistical sequence based on weather Mm -hmm. and access that we were dealing with. So the second one that we announced, and this one I think was a tremendous miss by the market, but obviously it's going to take a bit more data to give people the confidence that we have internally was the Ivic discovery, spelled A I V I Q. A couple things about this discovery: one is it's twelve kilometers away from the Three Bluffs deposit, which is mm-hmm. 1.2 million ounces of just under 8 grams per ton. It also has $27 million of infrastructure at the Three Bluffs area. So you're 12 kilometers away and I quote Michael Henriksen, our chief geologist, and you asked him, Michael, where would you want to find your discovery if you could ask for one part of the entire belt just would have been the target because it's the closest to existing infrastructure. And what that's going to enable us to do, Jake, it's going to enable us to drill in March, which we were just discussing at these Denver conferences oh. that we're at, and which will be mm. a lot sooner than, than what the market may have anticipated. And as sure. we get organized, we'll, we'll have an announcement to let people know. But here's our ambition, and, and here's why we're, we're really keen to go drilling and, and what the market has missed. We drilled 12 meters of 4.7 grams, was roughly the drill bit, or the drill intercept, and we intersected a shear zone. We weren't targeting shear zones on the belt. We knew there was a possibility they could be there, because we were told by some very smart people. However, we were targeting banded iron formations. Mm -hmm. For that reason, you go and look at what we drilled, there was the 12 meter intercept running about 4.7 grams, three meters of it ran 18 grams. So, mm. we achieved the most important thing, which is grade, that the area that we drilled it has about an 80 to 100 meter wide envelope of shearing and fluids and gold fluids in the shear zones, albeit there's some smoke around it because it's 0.2, 0.3, 0.5 grams per ton, but it gives us the confidence that we just, we didn't just intersect a vein. We, we actually mm-hmm. a real shear zone that has real width potential on it. Now... Whether we drill 12 meters of 4.7 grams or 12 meters of 20 grams per ton, you know, I don't think the market reaction would be much different, but Mm -hmm. that wasn't the most important part about the hole. If you look in our presentation or in our maps and in our press release, where we drilled this was on a seven kilometer long projected shear zone, which has a tremendous amount of gold and tills and gold boulders shedding off of this, uh, this big structure. So that's where we get really excited. It's seven kilometers long, an area where the ice direction was moving from south to north. On the other side of the shear zone, you can see these pinkish areas, which are representing plus five grams per ton in boulders that um, we believe were sourced right to the shear zone. And if you look where the actual fence we drilled across the shear zone, it's right in the, in the heart of where a lot of these boulders were, were coming from. There's a few areas that stretch across the seven kilometers, but a real obvious location of source, we drilled it, we've got the first hole. Now, we've been showing people uh, an example of a diagram of one of the early holes at Muscle White. And if you know Muscle White, well, it's one of the largest, richest gold mines in Canada, owned and operated mm-hmm. by Gold Corp. And mm-hmm. the first hole there, in one of their main zones, was three meters of five grams. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of people would have walked away from there. Shareholders would have been highly disappointed. But look at what you would have missed if you'd, if you'd moved on. The type of systems that we're in, they're going to have both impressive high-grade widths, and they're going to also have narrower holes with lower grade. They're very erratic, whether it's a shear zone or abandoned iron formation. If you look at three-bluffs, you know, mm-hmm. 10 meters or 4 grams. You know, how is that any different than 12 meters no. or 5 grams? Although one's abandoned iron formation, one's a shear zone. They both represent one common denominator, and that's they could scale up to be another five or seven million ounce or, or maybe bigger type of deposit up there and why I can say that with some confidence on the IVIC discovery is because it's on a seven kilometer long shear zone which is shedding gold you know in the five gram range you know north of it
2: mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, really exciting, and you can get in there as early as March, which is, uh, yeah, that's that's a pleasant surprise to hear that. Wow, you so you're looking at some some huge targets there. Well, they have to be huge, as you pointed out before, the Committee Bay project, given its location. But the fact that you do have some good infrastructure there, close to this target, big plus, I guess. And so, uh, well, well, we'll certainly be keeping our eyes on on Committee Bay and what you've got coming and the drill results. When do you expect them? The next the next batch. So we.
0: We have um, next batch. I think will be out next week, and then uh, oh, good. we have twelve thousand meters to come from Homestake, and then uh, so that those results will start in October, and then our drilling improve starts on the first week of November is, is the anticipated time right now. So we're not going to hit the seasonality uh, factor of the market, which a lot of northern juniors would hit, you know, drilling up north, you can't drill to the new year. And, um, you know, drilling in March at Committee Bay on the back of the IVIC Discovery, and there may be more, we'll see how the rest of the results come out, but drilling here this early, there'll be a slight cost, but it's so close to three Bluffs, so it won't be that badly, but what we need to show the market is we need to show that we can drill underneath this hit, this hit was very close to surface, it was about 40 or 50 meters from surface, which is basically at surface. We need to drill underneath it, and we need to drill beside it, and we're going to use an RC rig this time, which has a lot more depth capabilities, and it will be 43101. When you go up to Committee Bay, you drill 30,000 meters across 300 kilometers on 18 targets, you <laughs> generally will be very pleased if you get a response, as we have so far in Ivic, and I think there will be a few more. What you what you also get is a one-dimensional answer, and I think it's going to be important for the market to see the second and third dimension. Second dimension would be to drill deeper underneath that hit to see the continuation of the pod that you've intercepted, as well as to step out a long strike on either the left or the right of that hit as well to show that it has width as well. If we can demonstrate that in March, I think a delayed reaction where there, there could be a potential major discovery becomes bona fide, and I think a lot of the market starts to pick up and understand it aggressively. You know, that, that being said, Jay, I'll finish on this note, is that um, you know, we're sitting here with a lot of anticipation and anxiety over the remaining results that are to come out of Committee Bay as well yes. as that of Homestake. And, and I say this with a lot of excitement and encouragement. Um, as far as the soft share price that everyone's seen in the last week, I would I'd pick on a little bit of a seasonality for gold equities. I see it across my entire portfolio, not just with our company. And I'm not phased by it at all. I'm not phased by it for two reasons. One, because I can see what we've, we're getting into in Committee Bay. That gives us the first discovery. The confidence level internally has gone way up that will we'll deliver a huge success there. And secondly, I see that as, uh, as an opportunity, as you said, to be buying. You know, obviously, we can't trade our stocks with results coming. But I've been a buyer of lately, and that's just more of, you know, wanting to own more, knowing that we're on to discovery.
2: Well, yeah, Homestake uh, project has certainly been one of my favorites in your portfolio. Uh, what? How much drilling are you doing there, and, and when might we see some some samples,
0: some uh, assays out of there? Yeah, so I think uh, twelve and a half thousand meters is what we're able to do this summer. Mm-hmm. And we got on the project for the first time in July. And for those of you that are not familiar with it, it has about, if you you model it this way, about 1.4 million ounces of 7 grams or 1.1 million ounces of 9 grams gold equivalent. It's in the Golden Triangle. We all just saw what happened at GT Gold, you know, a little bit north of us in the Golden Triangle. Things that you get in there can get exciting very quickly, and as there is a quite a few ounces there to start with at a very high grade, you know, it, it gives us a lot of encouragement, and that we might be able to answer the most important question. It's not a necessary question, but it's an important one for value creation. Is does stake get bigger? And what we're showing people in a video that will soon be posted on our website, and I'll, I'll email you when it is. We're showing people what a lot of the rock looks like, you know, uh, pre-assay and. Normally, we wouldn't be a big fan of doing this, but what we've demonstrated in, the, in our presentation so far is we've hit a lot of fluid pathways. Mm-hmm. The rock looks very similar to the rock that has the high grade there that's existing. And these are all step outs. These are all, let's see if there's anything more versus. Mm-hmm applying or drilling what's there in place and so you know i'm i'm excited by by the rocks that we've seen we've we stepped out pretty extensively on the big main zone where i think the best hole was 73 meters of 20 grams we've gone 400 meters north across a valley where a glacier had receded and um you know we're drilling a big panel of rock and we've put about five or four or five holes into it if these things start to come back with with some precious metals in them, then we're going to be on to another major discovery in the triangle. So a lot to look forward to, a lot to be excited about. And for for sake of timing, I'd say the first week of October, you know, first two weeks of October is a very realistic time to start seeing the results. That's our our hope based on the assay labs and how they're delivering results right now.
2: Wow, that's good. And Will, the homestake, I guess you don't drill there through the winter and not this winter anyway, huh?
0: No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't drill there until next summer. Much like mm-hmm. anyone else in the Golden Triangle, you are right. limited by season. But the good news is, as we're all waiting for results to come back from that program, uh, trench results will be coming from Peru, followed by drill results uh, of drilling that will start taking place November first, and that will be continuous right through the March program that starts at Committee Bay, which will be followed by a summer program in both Committee Bay and in Homestake next year, and so. It's, it's really intense what we're up to, but it's going to bring a lot of value for us going forward. We're, we're very confident of that.
2: Yeah, you've got several projects. Uh, I think three or f- four of them, I guess, in in Peru. And which one is which one are you working on now? And what do you expect to accomplish there with this drill program? So we're working. Or this on our- program, you're trenching and drilling, I guess.
0: Yeah, we're we're working most active on Weakoyo. It's the first one that we've achieved our community agreements on, and we've applied for our drill permits. So we have full access to that property. It will be followed by Sombrero and then Banyustil, India, which are both in the mature stages of negotiating the community agreements, and we anticipate having those in the near term. But Wiacoyo has about a 150,000-ounce non-43101 oxide resource on it. And what we're doing there is we're, we're drilling stepping away from that main resource and we're working our way to see what what could be there. And our target would be one to two million ounces of oxide in this initial target. There's two other targets that exist. The southern portion of Liakoya has about 1.8 kilometers long of plus 50 ppb in soils, which is very significant for the region. And it's never been drilled or trenched or touched by anyone else, but it's something that we're we're grooming for a drill-ready stage in the new year, as well as something called Takora Sur, Tacora was a recent acquisition that we made. We were very keen to make it ahead of the starting of this drill program, much like a few other things we're working on in Peru. Tacora has about a two-kilometer two long, 400-meter-wide, high sulfidized mineralized zone, some beautiful-looking rocks and veining that is on strike from the main zone that's been previously drilled at Huia proper, which is where our drilling is going to start. So, what we're doing there, uh, Jay, is we're really opening up the potential for multiple, you know, million to two million ounce oxide deposits to occur. We have power lines and water within 500 meters and roads, 500 meters right to the property, roads right mm. on the property. So the accessibility and infrastructure is extremely, extremely advantageous. So when we talk about finding something here, you got to think very low cost, very high margins, very good profitability because of location and access to infrastructure.
2: Yeah, always a very important consideration, of course. Well, how is your, you know, how's your financial situation now? Do you have enough to take you through your existing programs or the pr- ones that enough. you're planning?
0: We have enough to take us right through uh, the end of the year, which would include the drilling that we're going to start at Weakoyo. And we have enough to cover our DNA through the end of next year. We will need to raise money, but we still have 30,000 meters of results coming. But we certainly don't need to raise any money this year. We would likely anticipate doing that in the new year sometime in Q1 and we don't have to raise the money for the whole portfolio in one transaction. We can mm-hmm. be very clever and very antidilutive of how we do that and pick strategic partners, whether it be financial or corporate partners like we did last year and mm-hmm. work towards that kind of a model. Um, I can say this much that we've been getting a lot of interest for financing by a lot of very good investors and we're just not ready to do that yet for the obvious reason that we want to see what comes out of um, the balance of the 30,000 meters of results that are pending.
2: Yeah, I, I would just like to say to my listeners that, uh, Ivan, you are one of the larger shareholders, I believe, uh, individual shareholders anyway. and. Your your management team owns shares. I think it's always good uh, to be aligned with the management. That the management's aligned with uh, with our interests as shareholders. And I can also say that I've been I really have admired your ability to raise capital efficiently and in a non dilutive manner. Uh, which also is, is very, very important in this business, in this exploration business. as uh, maybe, maybe newcomers, investors aren't aware of it, but it's something you really have to be aware of, and I think it's one of the reasons you've been so successful. Anything else you'd like to tell us today before we conclude this discussion?
0: Yeah, I'll reflect a little bit on the Denver conferences because yes, we've had please. so many meetings and we got to see investment funds or institutional investment funds as well as the the mid-tier and the major mining companies. What was a remarkable change in this year from last year was the amount of corporates that juniors were meeting with. There was a tremendous amount of interest, and I think it's a real big tell. And If you look at the way Goldcorp invested into us earlier this year, there's a lot of anxiety amongst the corporates, I think, to start finding a path towards growth. And because there's been a six-year downturn, looking back to when we sold Caden, over nobody was really finding anything. I think that anxiety is probably built. They're not ready to transact today. I don't think you'll see M&A overnight. But they're trying to get organized to see where discoveries could come from and who offers the best pipeline of exploration towards where they're going to go. Um, the theme of the of the market was was extremely busy. You know, there was a lot more one-on-one meeting spaces that being occupied. They were taking up lobbies at Beaver Creek that were generally sure. used for, you know, walking through to between meetings with booths where you could meet. So, sure. the attendance was way up this year, which just tells me that the general macro picture for gold is very positive. The better gold performs, the better chance that majors are gonna have to grow. Then it makes things like Oren, you know, a lot more palatable towards a similar event that happened with Caden. And the final note, Jay, that I'll make, and it was the question that I got asked or we were discussing in the last meeting, was I was kind of getting asked about the comparison to where we were with Caden and the business model of Oren. And uh, Sean and I were sitting there and we're saying, Oren has the equivalent of 10 Caden's in one company, and I could go through this over you know, a good 45 minutes of your time, which I won't today, Yeah, it will likely fall through the same process that Caden did. And uh, the, the biggest difference between us and Caden is the scalability of all of these things are, are much larger than what we were finding at Caden. But when I say that, I'm referring specifically to the confidence we had when we stepped on foot on Caden's ground, and what I'm saying is to also the scope of what what could grow over time, you know, what we felt, and then the transaction that happened. So I think we have something that's really never been done before, not as an active portfolio together, and it's certainly getting a lot of respect from the right people at this conference. Well, it is exciting, no doubt about it. Uh,
2: That's why you're one of my top picks. So I'll keep up the good work. We really look forward to keeping up with you, uh, Ivan. Thank you so much for your time and all the best to you and your team.
0: Appreciate it very much, Jay. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you.
2: Likewise. All right, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away because I'm gonna be right back here with Alistair McLeod, who will comment on the current stage of the credit cycle and why we are now approaching or in the more dangerous portion of that cycle. So don't go away, we'll be right back with Alistair McLeod.
3: Global Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017. Followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: Welcome back to New Hard Times to the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod, one of our most favored guests. Uh, he writes frequently, I think almost every week, you can pick up an article that he writes at goldmoney.com, and I would suggest uh, those of you out there who care two hoots about what's going on in the economy, in the markets, uh, you better do that, because Alistair provides some great insights into not only what is happening, but why it's happening and why it's likely to happen in the future. So thanks for joining me again, Alistair.
4: That's very much my pleasure, Jay.
2: Always good to have you with us. I want to ask you about an article that you just wrote. It's posted up there now. I guess people can read it at Gold Money. The forthcoming global crisis. And you stated, you started out in the article by saying, and I quote, ever since the last credit crisis, 2007-08, the next crisis has been anticipated by investors. Now I have to ask you, Alistair, where is your faith? Where is your faith in the PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale? How dare you question them? They most certainly have fixed things. And tell us why you don't believe that.
4: Well, I think you know the answer to that one, Jay. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, The answer really is quite simple. They follow a line of reasoning which uh, was embodied in Keynes' general theory, Mm -hmm. which is complete nonsense. Uh, The first thing that Keynes did with his general theory was deny the validity of Say's law. Um, He defined it incorrectly. Basically, what Say's law... Uh, says is that um, we produce things in order to consume. Mm. And, um, you know, money is merely the, um, uh, if you like, the intermediary between our production and the goods we buy. Uh, and um, you cannot produce more, if you like, in a community uh, than... Um, uh, 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 that you, you can't produce more than you buy and equally... <laughs> You can't buy more than you produce. Mm -hmm. If you do, then basically some uh, fake money has to be introduced into the system. Mm -hmm. And that's really the problem we have today. And that's why we have trade imbalances, budget imbalances, and all the rest of it. And and the idea that you can stimulate the economy by encouraging consumption, uh, by expanding bank credit, um, to try and get the economy going, is completely fallacious. Because all you do is you lock yourself into a credit cycle. And this was the nub of my argument. Uh, We all work on a credit cycle. It's not a business cycle. Well, you could call it a business cycle, but it is driven by credit. So call it a credit cycle. Right. And you've you've got very distinct phases. You have a crisis um, from the last cycle. And uh, in that crisis, the central bank moves from trying to slow down at the rate of inflation, slow down the rate of monetary growth, raise interest rates to try and cool the economy down because things are getting out of control. They raise the rates to the point where suddenly all the business models that were predicated on lower interest rates start going horribly wrong. And as well as that, you've inevitably got a legacy of debt which is completely unaffordable from business models which actually should never have been um, uh, undertaken in the first place. So you get a crisis, and so the, uh, the Fed or whichever the central bank is then turns around 180 degrees and tries to support prices to stop them falling because they believe that falling prices are bad. They're not, actually. It just clears the market. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll give them that one. But then the next phase is, uh, is, is a phase of recovery. And during that recovery, we are all terribly worried because we remember what happened five minutes ago. We remember how, uh, you know, there was that awful moment where we were looking at the banking system. We suddenly thought, my goodness, we're going to lose everything. This is terrible. How are the banks going to open tomorrow? What is going to happen? And that is still fresh in our minds. And there's always some disaster round the corner for us to worry about, whether it's Europe or Cyprus or, uh, you know, um, Spain or Italy. I mean, you've got all these um, crises going on at any one moment. And of course, it's a very good reason for the market to collapse and for disaster to happen. But no, this is what recovery is all about. And someone once s- described that such a market as a wall of worry. And during that uh, wall of worry. Of course, um, you get low interest rates, um, money starts trickling into the um, in, into financial assets, so your your bond yields fall, your share prices rise, and then at some stage this turns into an expansionary phase because suddenly the bankers realise that actually there isn't so much risk in the economy because the economy is actually going quite well. So we'll increase our lending to the economy, but in order to do that, they sell down their government bonds because they've they've bought government bonds short term government bonds as a risk free alternative in a very risky world so they switch from owning financial assets into lending to business and the effect of that is to drive yields on government bonds up and at that stage equity markets start going down We haven't quite got to that stage yet, but we're getting to that stage. And uh, then, of course, the economy really looks good, but it's going too quickly. It's been overstimulated. And inevitably, you start running into bottlenecks, shortages, prices start rising. And then, guess what the Fed has to put up interest rates again and you get the uh, the next credit cycle. So that's sorry, the next credit crisis. And that, Mm -hmm. I think, is what we've got ahead of us. And my best guess at this stage and my view will change. I I give due warning. But my best guess at this stage is it's likely to be um, in the second half of next year that this crisis occurs. And the reason I picked that timing is I'm looking at Europe in particular because Europe is beginning to go like a train. Uh, the German economy is um, uh, it's very, very strong indeed. Even um, economies such as Italy and Spain and so on are beginning to pick up now. They're getting into a sort of expansionary mode. So, uh, you know, the economic runes tell me that we've probably got um, about a year of this, something like that before it goes wrong. But before we get there, the first thing that's got to happen is we've got to get a reversal of um, monetary expansion from the ECB. The ECB has to stop um, uh, negative interest rates on uh, you know, bank deposits on its own balance sheet. It's got to stop the 60 billion euros a month uh, asset purchase programs. It's got to actually raise rates to something positive. Now, that, I think, is going to be quite a big shock in the Eurozone government bond markets, because if you look at the Schacht bond, which is the two-year German government bond, that yields a minus 0.68%. I mean, this is completely ridiculous, completely mispriced. It's mispriced because of what the um, the ECB has been doing. So I think there is, um, if you like, a shock as that gets sorted out. And I think that's going to mark the turning point for our equity markets, which is the first one to fall, well, the second one to fall, because Mm -hmm. Bonds have already turned some time ago, Um, and uh, so equities are the next one. You'll then find that uh, the economy as a whole will look pretty good, and a lot of amateur investors will say, well, you know, we should be buying equities because companies Mm -hmm. are coming in with better-than-expected profit forecasts. It's all looking very good, but all this is done on um, expansion of bank credit. And then you have the third crisis. And the third crisis is industrial assets suddenly um, uh, uh, start um, getting into trouble. And amongst those industrial assets are property. And if you look back to the last crisis we had in two thousand and seven, eight, it was property that undid the whole thing. So we've we've still got that to go through. In my in in my opinion, what we have to take on trust, however, is that all these sort of uh, um, you know distortions and so on and so forth and all the problems, um, you know, somehow the central banks will. Uh, muddle their way through it they'll kick the can down the road if you mm-hmm. like but the one mm-hmm. thing they can't do is stop that final credit driven crisis so that i think gives us if you like a road map and an eventual end time on when this is likely to happen
2: well, certainly um, things are getting better in Europe. I think uh, Mrs. Taylor and I just returned from Portugal and in our discussions with people. Uh, the general consensus is things have gotten somewhat better. It's not booming yet. Uh, so do you think that Europe is getting close to that point where the central bankers are going to realize they have to, they have to tighten up or stop being so promiscuous with their money creation?
4: I think stop being promiscuous is probably the first stage, and uh, I would expect that by the end of this year, yes. Now, the reason that Europe is going like a train is it's really um, partly, you know, because things are getting better, as it were, Um, but... Uh, Remember that uh, we've got China, which has had a massive um, uh, program of uh, expanding trade throughout the Eurasian continent. Uh, And now, uh, I think I've said this on your show before, uh, you can put a Mercedes on uh, on the train in Stuttgart and have it in the showroom in Beijing in 15 days. Mm -hmm. And equally, uh, you know, the, the white goods manufacturers in Europe who... Um, make all their stuff uh, in China they can put their white goods in containers and get it um, uh, in the showrooms uh, around Europe uh, again within 15 days and that time is coming down and it's planned to come down to under 10 days so so Um, You know, this is this is um, uh, enormous stuff. Uh, And uh, China is going to spend an awful lot of money. It's going to cause a lot of money to be spent um, developing the whole of the Asian continent. There's an industrial revolution there. And of course, um, Europe, the EU, the Eurozone um, is going to be very much affected by this. And this is this is why I think it's caught everybody by surprise. You know we all know that the banks in italy are in trouble we you know we know that deutsche bank has um you know has had a hell of a time and all the rest of it and, and portugal um uh your wife's stamping ground <laughs> um you know they've had the most ghastly time and greece and so on. but you know we forget in all this that actually underlying it there has been this pickup in business and um you know uh, things have progressed and they continue to progress. So it's, it, I think the, the ECB has just got itself completely wrong-footed in this and is going to have to do a volt farce by the end of this year. Now, that is going to create a financial shock, of that I'm sure. But um, I believe that the ECB will pick up the pieces... And I was interested to see, incidentally, that only tonight um, uh, Ms. Yellen, Mrs. Yellen has uh, uh, said that um, you know perhaps we've got to be a bit more um, aggressive on interest rates. That's not, not quite her words, but that's mm. what she was saying. Oh. And this to me smells like preparing the ground for a shift, if you like, in, um, in, 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 in international central bank policy, if I can put it that way. Um, I mean, I've I've been writing for a long time that interest rates in America are far too low. I mean, it's completely mm-hmm. ridiculous. But mm-hmm. the problem that the Fed has is that if they raise the Fed funds rate somewhere over 2 percent because of the huge amount of debt in the economy, not least um, government debt as well, um, then that in itself is probably enough to, to uh, create um, uh, the credit crisis. So. Uh, It's actually quite a fine line we're walking here, I think, between, um, you know, the economy is sort of all right; it's expanding, uh, but raise the interest rates not very much, and suddenly you're in crisis. So it's going to be a very, very difficult time. But I do see that the central banks have got to uh, turn around and recognise that their economies are growing. The U.S. economy, incidentally, is growing at a very subdued rate compared mm-hmm. with elsewhere. Um, but that's because you don't—you've got no benefit from the China story whatsoever. Britain right. has. Europe has, Japan has, South Korea has. If we can, <laughs> if we can is. put the Korea problem to one side for the moment, the whole of Southeast Asia has, all the commodity suppliers like, uh, uh, you know, Australia, Australia yeah. Uh, yeah. and sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, they are supplying. Um, uh, these commodities, and so they are doing quite well as well. The only country, really, that's a laggard in this is the one that has the reserve currency, which is an interesting point, and that's America.
2: That, that is a very interesting point, point. and certainly uh, this trade with China isn't uh, being improved under the Trump administration, I would, I would suggest. No. Um, no <laughs> from I'm the sorry. United yeah, States perspective, yeah. Well, let, let me ask you, Alistair, let, let me just try to understand, because I think one of the insights that you helped me with Recently, uh, was an understanding why the banks would feel compelled at some point to sell their treasuries and you know and and safe assets and there and start lending. As you mentioned, the the they're not fearing any longer the the economy. It has gotten better. Obviously, uh, seven eight years since the last crisis. People forget. They tend to tends not to be as as vivid in their memory uh, the pain that took place then. Uh, and and so, but I guess if banks are holding treasuries and they see rates starting to rise, it's a losing proposition to hold them, isn't it? So they dump the treasuries, therefore causing rates to rise even further. Uh, but then they have money that they lend out into the economy, uh, therefore stimulating the economy, which is already growing even more, thereby causing prices to rise, which then causes the central banks to think they have to lend, uh, have to pull back even more, or at least not create money as rapidly as they were before but on the other hand you've got the governments that have this tremendous debt more than ever 20 trillion in the united states and your interest rates start going up and they have to start paying more for the bond i mean this is really a bad situation that we're in isn't it
4: well it happens every cycle just as you've described it jay um but they're getting because- more
2: and more advanced they're getting more uh, it seems to be more and more faster and faster though Alistair. Well,
4: I think I think Each bigger cycle. and bigger, bigger yes. and bigger is is, yeah. is a concerning thing because yes. um, the success of the central banks basically has been to stop debt liquidation. The result is that every cycle starts with a higher level of debt than the previous cycle. And consequently, when at uh, some stage, you know, this whole thing is just going to be completely uncontrollable. But um, uh, you know, I, I think that what will happen on the next credit crisis is that the central banks will throw um, so much more money at the problem because the one thing they don't want to see is prices fall and prices will fall if you get a contraction of bank credit. So they will make up for all contraction of bank credit by producing more base money, by doing QE on a scale like you've never seen before. We thought it was enormous last time. It's going to be bigger this time. But I think the inevitable consequence of this this next time is that somewhere down the road, maybe over the next two or three years, following 2018, if my timescale is right, uh, we're likely to get um, the destruction uh, of, of paper currencies. Because mm-hmm. you can't just flood um, everything with, um, you know, yet more and more money uh, and expect prices not to reflect that expansion in the quantity of money. So I can certainly see that this time around there is a very good chance that the actions of the central banks will actually end up destroying their own currencies.
2: Wow, oh, that's, uh, that's a pretty frightening uh, a frightening thought, but on the other hand, Alistair, I think what you're saying, the insights that you're providing here and those of the Austrian school that understand these dynamics that you're talking about, it also provides an opportunity for people that understand this because certainly the mainstream media is trying, certainly doesn't understand it, the mainstream economists don't understand it, uh, but this is reality. I mean, I, you and I have been around long enough to see several of these cycles, and we know it's true. So the point is that we can take advantage of this, can't we? I mean, we can, <laughs> yes. we, we can, we can actually profit from this nonsense that's going on, n- not to try to take advantage of the miseries of everyone else, but simply to protect ourselves and our families, right?
4: I think if you understand what's going on, then um, I think the first thing you can do is you can... Uh, if you like, angle your investment portfolio accordingly. So when I mean invest in investment, I would think, um, you know, there's a time to buy into gold mines, for example. Um, so that's the sort of thing I would look at as an investor. But I think there is a secondary point which uh, we must understand, and that is that when currencies are being destroyed, you need to protect yourself It's protecting yourself and your family. This is really what it then becomes about. And um, uh, at that stage, what you must do, I think, um, is hold the one form of money which governments cannot print, which governments cannot cannot issue, and that is gold, possibly silver. Yep. I mean, so, so you know, silver, silver, if you like, is 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 is, I suppose, a little bit of a speculative version of gold, but it's got the same characteristics of gold. But gold, if you like, um, is the last true um, money, sound money, uh, in existence. And indeed, our paper currencies owe their existence to um, having started off as a substitute for gold. Well, that's uh, and, true. You know, and, and so, you know, when they get destroyed, what have you got? You've only yeah. got one thing, and that is gold.
2: Yeah, Alistair, we're going to have to leave it go at that. I, I cheated you on the time. Again, thank you so much for your insights. Always great to hear from you. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you back again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much.
4: That's, that's my pleasure, Jay.
2: All right. Well, folks, next week uh, I'm going to have Jim Rickards with us, and he's going to talk about currency wars, certainly a topic that Alistair could talk about as well. But Jim Rickards will be here to talk about some exciting things that are going on. Imagine China buying its oil with RMB backed by gold. Those are some of the issues I'm sure Jim will talk to us about next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you.